Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In pole position on tonight's My Sporting Life, a British motorsport legend, the 1992 Formula One world champion, Nigel Mansell. And Mansell goes through! Oh, fantastic! Nigel Mansell, as he and Senna come up to pass, the Onyx takes the lead. Wheel-to-wheel stuff. Look at this. They're almost touching. Mansell gets in there. They're breaking ranks. The Union Jacks are waving. And Nigel Mansell wins the 1992 British Grand Prix in terrific style. Born above a tea shop in Borton, just outside Upton upon Seven in the county of Worcestershire. Memories of your childhood, please. Yeah, I mean, um, amazing, really. But uh, we left there when I was very, very young and then moved to uh, Hall Green in uh, Birmingham and then uh, was there for a number of years. And then we moved out to Withall, uh, which is just off Dickens Heath Road, Ellswood Lakes, and obviously went to school in the Midlands. And then obviously from then uh, graduated um, to uh, various colleges uh, which encompassed Solihull, Matthew Bolton, a number of others. Um, were engines in the house? Were you a, yeah, a motor family? Tuning, yeah, we were tuning engines upstairs, actually, on the table <laughs> in one of the one of the little bedrooms, because I used to actually earn some money by doing that. But doing lots of things and having, obviously, a tremendous amount of fun. Am I right that your dad was a senior engineer at Lucas Aerospace and your mum uh, was working in the tea shop uh, and you were born there? Yeah, I was born upstairs. Um, obviously, in those days, uh, a lot of children were born at home, and I was uh, sort of uh, privileged to be one of them. And uh, so uh, I don't know whether that makes any difference as you grow up, but, uh, you know, I've got a free cup of tea now and again. <laughs> when did racing first hit you? When Are you are you aware of a moment when you thought Yeah, I, th- I think seven, eight years of age, um, you know, when I uh, got a car to drive around the garden. It was one-wheel drive, so it went around one corner faster than another one because I didn't understand the straight-through axle at that time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, just gradually um, uh, developed from there and uh, just had, again, tremendous amount of fun and it came natural, driving and driving fast and... Uh, we went up through the ranks, obviously, through many years of uh, dedicated driving with karting and racing and eventually, obviously, broke into single-seater racing. You can see the glint in your eye when you mention the words, phrase, going fast. School wasn't so good, is that right? Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't, shall I say, a, um, a scholar in school. No, I didn't like school too much. I went to too many different schools and, and that um, sort of was a bit of a problem sort of fitting in. And uh, I had other ideas anyway, and um, so uh, I did all my schooling when I left school, and I got an apprenticeship at Lucas Aerospace, which was probably 
a fantastic uh, thing for me because it uh, got me doing a job in the factory, but it also gave me, uh, they called it um, sandwich time, where you go for three months at a time mm. and get educated and get all your qualifications. And so that's when I became a, a qualified engineer over six six years with them. Tell us about your first cart. Surely you remember your first cart. Yeah, it was. I thought it was the best thing that you know was ever been built. And you know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter if it's if it's it's beautiful and it doesn't win and it's ugly. And if it's ugly and it wins, it's beautiful. Well, this thing was all the above. It was ugly. It was beautiful. Was it a sophisticated and engine? It was a sophisticated. And I thought, well, this is the best thing in the world. And then when I took it to the first race. And I did one lap, and everyone else had done two laps. I realised, I realised I was in a very ancient uh, cart that we had to upgrade. Did you have any difficulty with the mechanics of it? Let's say with it. No, we did it all ourselves. I think my father was magnificent. That um, you know, we we worked together as a team. It was wonderful, and um, you know, we used to tune the engines ourselves as well. So it was basically how much effort you put in yourself as to how quick you'd go. I mean, I'll never forget the different amount of pistons we used to drill holes in and machine down and file down by hand, and then they would seize up and we'd have to sort of, you know, lap them in again and uh, give them a bit more clearance so they didn't seize up again. And, um, you know, it was just a blast, and, um, you know, we just did everything ourselves. You're a very determined character. We saw that throughout your career. In school days, um, there were occasions when people were on your case and you had to deal with that little bit of bullying going on. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, quite significant at times, unfortunately. I mean, uh, when when somebody took a cricket bat to my legs, who was several years older than me in the playground. What was that uh, about? That's disgraceful. Well, I just got picked for the British team, and um, anyway, I was put on crutches then for a number of weeks, and um, so... And I think that's why I didn't like school too much. Uh, either I didn't fit in or people saw that I got some privilege, that I had some extra time off to represent my country, and, uh, and uh, it wasn't appreciated by some... What impact did all that have on you? Did it make you even more fired up and determined? Yeah, I think I withdrew a little bit. Um, and obviously, um, yeah, you're just determined. Um, I, th I think when you're young, you don't actually understand what's going on. You just think, well, you know, obviously, what have I done wrong? So you just try not to do anything wrong again because nobody likes getting hurt. Um, but you just deal with it in the best way you can. I mean, reflecting back, um, I shouldn't say this, but in, in the time that we grew up and the schools that we went to, um, it was almost the norm. So, you know, you just didn't think that, um, you know, it was just you. There's other people it was happening to as well. Uh, Nigel, by the end of your teenage years, you've racked up several titles, eight Midlands Championships, one Northern Championship, short circuit British Championship, to name but a few. Um, what were your options at this time in regards to furthering your career? Um, basically, it was a, you know, this is a fantastic question. We're, we're just at the point where we couldn't go any further in karting. And, um, you know, what is the next step? And what is really the next step? And the next step is single-seater racing. There was a few people in previous years that had made that so graduation, and I could see them getting some moderate success. And I actually believe that the people who'd gone before me, I was quite significantly quicker and, and a better all-rounded driver. But the difference was... I didn't have the funds to do it, so we we had to sort of think really hard, and and in fact it was my wife and I, because we got married very young, uh, we decided to sell everything we possibly could uh, sell at that time, and buy a very old car and re-engineer it. And although the car was very old and uh, didn't point all in the right direction, we managed to go out in a a car which was, uh, shall we say, a bit lame, 
but then we went out and won in it. So uh, that caught the eye of uh, different people, and we started to get supplied a free car, and then um, tuned Minister Engines, David Minister, uh, because he'd much prefer me winning with his engine than our engine. <laughs> and, um, you know, it progressed from there. So we we didn't make any money, but we, we the, the cost was reduced uh, ginormously because we rarely had to pay for anything. So commercialism entered the scene. What do you remember about karting now? Do you look back in a very romantic time? Yeah. Someone said once it was his favourite part of his career. Yeah, I no, it, it, it is partly romantic, and I'll tell you why. Because you do it with your family, you do it with your friends, and you make uh, f friends for life through karting. And, um, you know, I cherish some of the memories representing England and racing abroad in Italy and Holland and Sweden and going to certain world championships and... Uh, you know, there was just a camaraderie there that was, um, you know, missing now today. Yeah. No money involved really there then in terms of you could just go and race the commercialism of no, it. No, no. Brings it a different factor. Yeah, it's just your main holidays that you took uh, were then your racing holidays. And so, uh, you know, your parents sacrificed all their time, which they do for all the children. And uh, we went racing and uh, we just had a blast. Uh, during your first season competing in Formula Ford, you won six of the nine races, so you made an instant impact. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, fortunately, that's what kept us going. I mean, a lot of people that year were racing up to 30 or 40 events in the year because they were full-time drivers, but, you know, we cherry-picked and uh, we only had enough funds to just do those few races. But it gave us then the confidence to forge on and to do what we did then in 1977. Um you upgraded your car. Uh, an Irishman called Patrick let you have one of his single-seaters? What's the, yeah, what's we, the background? Yeah, we, 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 we borrowed one one of his cars, first of all, that was basically in the garden, and uh, it got resurrected. But um, as you know, uh, materials age harden, and uh, we, had, uh, we, had, we, had a, we had a few wins, but it fell apart more times than, uh, than it won. And I, th I think I lost the uh, the plot at Alton Park. I remember going down the back straight at about 120, 130 miles an hour, and my rear wheel overtook me because the rear wheel <laughs> just <laughs> not, came off and I accelerated. Not, not good uh, to see. Uh, well, you know, you, you, you're almost having a monumental accident then, and I realised that, you know, I needed to get a better car. And it was at that time then that we caught the hour of John's Crosley in Ireland, and, uh, and he gave me uh, a Crosley uh, 32F uh, to borrow. And, of course, that was a new car then that didn't break down so much. Special moments in your career. When you look back, I think you were 24. You hand in your notice uh, aerospace to concentrate on racing. Three weeks later, you have a really bad accident at Brands Hatch. Yeah, it was around that time. It might have been a year earlier, but, yeah, my neck got snapped at Brands Hatch. And uh, third, fourth and fifth vertebrae in my neck were damaged quite significantly. So... Yeah, momentarily, I, I couldn't feel my arms or my legs and was lying there in hospital completely emotionless. And that was an ugly time. How close were you to being seriously paralysed? Well, apparently I was very close to not even being alive because when I discharged myself after a week or so because I didn't uh, enjoy the visit there, um, I, Alistair Thompson, in, um, a specialist in Birmingham who I went to see, said basically... Uh, can I take some more x-rays of your neck? And I said, well, no, not really. Who's paying for that? And I said, why do you want to take even more? And the answer I got was, well, we've never seen anyone survive an injury like this, so we want to use it for the future, to demonstrate you can survive this terrible injury. But he said, I have to say that if you ever want to walk again properly, 
and and live, uh, then you're going to have to pay attention to what you do from this point on. Because I was, you know, wanting to go racing straight away, and that wasn't possible. Did you pay attention? Well, obviously you paid attention. Yeah, but let's got, get this straight: you discharged yourself from hospital pretty soon after that really serious injury that could have cost you your life. Yeah, well, I started to get some feeling back, and uh, I didn't really appreciate being told I'd never walk again. And um, there are some other things, obviously, I won't won't go into. But um, it was it was a really ugly time I had there, and um, you know, when you're coming up through the ranks, no one knows you, and. You know, everyone's sort of trying to do their best, but you're being treated very indifferently, is what I would say, to be polite. And, um, you know, I was away from everybody. Uh, my wife was working, so she never came to visit. And my family never came to visit uh, because things were very tough in those days. And being 200 miles away from, from, from where you were living, uh, people couldn't get the time off to come and visit. So I thought, well... I better discharge myself and, and go back home and get sorted out up there. But I didn't realise when you discharge yourself with such a serious injury, then the National Health Service, they have disclaimers they don't want to treat you anymore. So I went privately then. That must have been a really tough time. And I can see and hear what you're saying there. You've got to really fight for everything you want to get. Yeah, and the, th the thing was, fortunately, we had friends that rallied round and lent us some money because obviously we couldn't even afford to go privately. So... But the thing was, when you go privately, you get total attention. And, um, you know, National Health Service do a fantastic job. But, you know, back then, with what I wanted to do, they weren't giving me the answers I wanted, which was basically just roll over and, you know, you're not going to do anything or, or be able to walk again properly. So I thought, well, yeah, I'm fine. Thanks very much. I'll, uh, I'll look after myself. So it made you more determined. There were increased financial costs, I would imagine, too, in trying to push on in racing. H how did you manage to do that? I you just you just hang on. You just uh, hang on, and you find a way. And um, you know, it's easy to sort of say that, and in actuality, it's very hard to achieve. And I think at that time, um, you know, we uh, we basically were just hanging on by our fingernails. Uh, you and your wife sold your house, is that right? Yeah, that was another big mistake. I mean, you make these mistakes, don't you? <laughs> so you sold I mean, your house to raise funds to get the better car? Yeah, and it was a waste of time. <laughs> waste of time, waste of money. All I achieved in six weeks was to lose our home. So the so, car broke down, just wasn't good enough? Or? No, I got fired from the job because I didn't have any more funds You know, after the six weeks. And they promised me they would find sponsorship for the rest of the year, but... Then I found out, don't trust people who run teams because all they want is your money. And when your money runs out, they'll just fire you and get someone else. What impact does that have on you when you, you want to pursue your dream and you sell your house to try and get to the next stage and then all of a sudden you have to go home one night and you're sitting around the, the table with your wife and you say, this hasn't worked out. Well, it, and that it, must be a pretty low moment. Yeah, it's dumb. It is really probably the dumbest, lowest moments in my life. And unfortunately, it tested our relationship, but we, were, we had a great relationship. We we went into a rented accommodation. I think it was like £25 a week then. And uh, we used to work all hours um, that we had then to obviously pay the rent. And my wife was working all hours uh, to obviously contribute. And then, you know, I used to work something like 50-something hours in three days and then go on the road to try and find sponsors and try and continue racing and something. And that's when people said, well, look, we'll give you £50 to race my car, whether it be a saloon car or something else. And, um, you know, we managed to earn some extra money doing that before getting back into single-seaters again. And then, you've got a, then you have another accident, another serious accident that you, you break your back. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those things that um, when you're racing against people who want to try and make it as well in Formula One, some of them are more desperate than others. And uh, it was Andrea, bless him, he's not with us anymore. Um, but he put his wheel in in, uh, in the Open Series and he flipped me at 160-odd miles an hour. And I landed upside down. And unfortunately, it was September 1979. I remember it very well. And I was in hospital, um, you know, um, just around Alton Park some way. And yeah, it broke my lower part of my back. Um, I was given your book to read last night, Nigel Mansell, Staying on Track, the autobiography. And going through it, I've been leafing through it last night and this morning uh, on the way to uh, coming come to, come to meet you. And it just shows that it's quite a journey to get from karting to F1, isn't it? And how did you eventually make that? Well, it, well, it was a heck of a journey then. But, I mean, you know, I realise how lucky I've been. I look back and I just sort of hold my breath. Because when I was in hospital in 79, I was, I was lying outside the x-ray waiting uh, to be done. There was another gentleman lying there motionless and his head looking a bit funny. And I said, how are you doing? And he could talk, but he couldn't move. And quick story, I, I just said, what on earth happened to you? And he said, oh, he said, I've just had an accident playing rugby. And I ran up the back of somewhere and his neck had snapped and he's a quadriplegic. And so he was just playing rugby. I was racing a car at 160 miles an hour and I got off better than he did. So, you know, you talk about fate, and that's what the book's about. It's about, you know, real-life experiences. It's about fate and the journey that you go on. And you're quite right. The journey that we had to get there is a very, very different journey. For instance, like Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton did karting the same, but then he was he was spotted by McLaren, and then he was assisted then through different formulas and through different manufacturers. And, you know, he's had a very, very... Um, different route to get to the journey that he's on to what I did. Can you remember the first time you sat in and drove an F1 car? Like it was sitting here now today looking at you. It was um, incredible because it was a disaster. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was one of six drivers being tested down at Paul Ricard in 79. And I sat in the car as the last driver of the day to get in with only about 20 laps before it got dark. And I got in the car and I sat there and, and then they got me to drive out and the gearbox was shocking, the brakes were dreadful, there was no grip anywhere, I was, I was trying to drive as fast as I could and I was like five, six seconds a lap off the pace and I came in after 20 laps and I just thought, wow, this is not for me. You know, Gilles Villeneuve, the great Gilles Villeneuve was there testing with the Ferrari, I followed him around a couple of quick corners. And I managed to hang on to him, and I was really proud of myself. I thought, oh, this is really neat. And then we came to a slower corner chicane. He went one way, I went flying off the road and almost had an accident. And anyway, I came in, and I was really, really, really shocked at how slow I was. And um, I, I remember calling Rosanne that night, uh, saying that, you know, I think I've made a huge mistake. I'm way out my depth, way out my depth. And anyway, Peter Collins, who was a team manager, he took me to one side, and he said, look, he said, uh, you wait till tomorrow. He said, it'd be totally different. We'll get the gearbox sorted. We'll get some decent tires on the car and you know everything will be working. You'll feel different. Your mind will have programmed what you've learned tonight and you, you'll get another 20, 30 laps in the morning. And I thought, yeah, 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 right. Anyway, I came in the morning because I was naive. I'd never driven a Formula One car before. And of course, they gave me a better set of tires, which was almost new. The gearbox had been totally rebuilt because of all the dogs, because we used to change gear manually and the gears were jumping out of gear. New brakes, new brake pads and everything else. 
is a totally different motor car. And within the second lap, I was five seconds a lap quicker. And all of a sudden, you know, I took to it like duck to water. And I thought, well, this is easy now, isn't it? You know, and talk about being naive and not up to speed, you know. But just having those laps the night before made it sensational the next day. So it was, it was the quickest transition as that. It was marvellous, absolutely marvellous. Uh, Nigel, you explained to us in great detail when you sat in a Formula One car for the first time. So you make your F1 debut in a Lotus at the Austrian Grand Prix. What do you remember of that experience? 17th of August, 1980. Sensational. Um, I mean, uh, the build-up to it was just amazing. We had something like 36 cars trying to qualify for 26 places on the grid. So there's pre-qualifying. Um, the, the amazing thing was my car was um, a long-wheel-based car, and it was way off the pace. It was heavy as well. And there was no way I was going to make the race. And Colin made the incredible gesture uh, when Elio had already qualified, of pulling Elio out about 10 minutes before the end of qualifying and getting me to get in his car, giving me a new uh, set of boots, a new set of tyres. He said, right, go out and qualify. And I managed to just do two or three laps quickly in Elio's car and managed to qualify for the Grand Prix. So, of course, it was sensational to qualify. I was elated. Uh, jumping in Elio's car was, um, wow, it was a proper motor car. And uh, I thought, wow, it's a lot easier in this car than my car. <laughs> and, of course, once I qualified, then I was back in my car again. And I thought, oh, but you know, it doesn't matter because I'm starting my first race. And then, of course, on the grid, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, OK, I'm at the back of the grid, but I qualified. A lot of people had gone home already. And then all of a sudden I'm going, wow, I've got the hot blanket on here. You know, this is getting a bit warm. And then all of a sudden I'm feeling burning and stinging and all sorts of things around my backside, my buttocks and a few other areas. And I'm thinking, hang on, there's something wrong here. So I called my engineer over and, and of course, the fuel tank, uh, there'd been a leak and uh, I was sitting in fuel. So then he said, well, what are we going to do? There's two choices. We can, we can get some water and just pull a couple of gallons of water over you or we'll have to abort the race. And I said, there's no way we're aborting the race. So... We got a bucket of water and they poured a couple of gallons of water all over my overalls and diluted all the fuel in the bottom of the car. And obviously it went cool immediately and it felt comfortable. We started the race, but within sort of five to ten laps of the race, the burning sensation came back. And then, of course, oh, no. But, you know, it was very difficult going into the corners, but I put up with it, put up with it. And um, eventually the engine blew was somewhere about 40 lap time. And then I got out and I couldn't walk properly. My hamstrings were shrunk. And I had second and third degree burns to the uh, back of my uh, legs and my backside. So it wasn't a fun time because then at half past two, the following morning, I was in hospital uh, getting treatments and having them de-roofed. And uh, it took best part of a month to six weeks for it to all heal uh, sensibly because they were bleeding so bad. So F1 literally burned your backside first time out. Yeah, I'll never forget my first race for, for not all the right reasons. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now, you mentioned Colin before. Please explain to everyone the significance and the importance of Colin. Well, C- Colin Chapman is uh, obviously uh, was a legend in his own time while he was living, even a greater legend now since his passing. He uh, gave me my opportunity in Formula One. And without him being like a, a fairy godfather, literally, I never would have actually broken into Formula One at all. But he was my mentor. Uh, we got on incredibly well on an engineering level. Um, pretty much everything I sort of fed back to him, he rarely, if at all, ever questioned. And we always worked together to make the car you know, as fast as we possibly could. And uh, it was just devastating. It was is both brilliant part of my life and devastating when, of course, he was taken from us far too soon. Um, obviously, that had a big impact on you. And thinking back to your first race and that issue of you literally having your backside burned by fuel, that takes me to a more serious point of I was always keen to get your your views and your thoughts on safety in the sport because when you were driving, safety standards, it seems it was very different. Yeah, I mean, in truth, there wasn't many. And um, I know that sounds crazy because Sir Jackie Stewart worked tirelessly with a lot of other drivers in the 60s and 70s to improve them. And obviously, you know, they, they made certain strides. But then in the late 70s and all through the early 80s and through the 80s and even through to the early 90s to 94, many people were still losing their lives and the tracks were incredibly dangerous. The cars were basically uh, primitive to what the cars are today from the point of view of safe safety cells. And our, our feet especially were within a few inches of the front of the nose of the cone. So if you had any frontal impact, your feet obviously got crunched up pretty bad. So, um, so yeah, it was a time that you literally took your life in your own hands. You had to be very calculating on some circuits around the world because the corners literally had no runoffs, zero runoffs at all. You were entering them at upwards of 200 miles an hour and sometimes over 200 miles an hour, and the barriers were on the edge of the circuit. So if anything went wrong, you were straight in the wall, straight in the barrier, and had a monumental accident, whereas, of course, today, uh, obviously, massive improvements have evolved. And and obviously, you'd be on the track when accidents would take place in front of you, where, where people lost their life. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been lucky because I'm still here, but I've been very unlucky that I've seen, um, obviously, death uh, very close up and actually witnessed firsthand, literally within you know, uh, yards from me, where people have lost their lives. 
and how it's unfolded where, you know, it's turned into a catastrophic accident. So, um, so yeah, and what you have to do is you have to learn from it, you have to deal with it, and and hopefully, you know, unlike back then where, you know, the, the circuits or even the uh, manufacturers, they wouldn't actually then change things too quickly. Now, if uh, anything happens like that, so which is dreadful, things will get changed very quickly. Uh, would the drivers... And I hear and read about the drivers have meetings together sometimes and obviously in wet weather conditions uh, that can really heighten the safety issues. So the drivers unity together, could that sometimes play a part? Yeah, we try to. I mean, we had the most famous, uh, the only driver strike, I think, in the last 40 years was was done uh, back in the early 80s um, where the drivers actually went on strike for a number of reasons. And we got everyone's attention, but that brought a lot of difficulties as well because the the uh, drivers who just joined the sport, and I was one of them, it put a bit of pressure on us because our team owners and manufacturers said, well, if you don't drive the car tomorrow, then you know, you'll know you lose your job. And we were very concerned about losing our job, but the unity the drivers had pulled through, and I don't believe anybody lost their job because you know the voice we had at that time uh, sort of... Um, you know, counted for something, and uh, things started to improve a little bit, but I have to say incredibly slowly. How do you look back at overall your time at Lotus? Uh, wonderful, to the point when um, uh, Colin was alive. Uh, a dream, a beautiful dream, uh, with fantastic support from the Chapman family. And, of course, when, um, unfortunately, Colin was taken from us, uh, then the whole experience from that point on was almost horrific. Do you know the time to leave? How does it come around when you think, yeah, you have a relationship with yeah. Lotus? I think I think it... de- destiny, really. Um, I was ready to retire uh, back in 83, 84, um, because I was so... Um, retire full-time? Yeah, because I was so upset, disappointed with how things were uh, had developed since uh, Colin, unfortunately, was taken. And um, then I was possibly uh, uh, one of three or four drivers in line for the Williams drive. And then, you know, Sir Frank was um, just wondering what to do. And I just thought, well, you know what, I'll take myself out of the equation I'll, um, and I'll, I'll do something else. And uh, But then out of, out of um, the blue, then I got the offer to the drive for the Williams team. And obviously we went on from strength to strength then. Was it just a phone call that came out the blue, as you no, say? There was there was a meeting, and there was um, I, I basically said at Zandvoort I needed to know what I was going to do going forward because I was a qualified engineer. I was possibly going to go back to my engineering work, and um, you know uh, I came third, got a podium in in not a very competitive car, and I think that clinched it that weekend. And the fact that I said, well, I'll do something else. There's a few other people that were interested in doing some things. But but fortunately, then uh, I think a few things swayed um, Frank and maybe Patrick to give me an opportunity, and um, I've got to thank them officially now that you know we started and we started to have a wonderful relationship and we built that up for many years. Nigel, staying on track is your autobiography that's uh, recently been published, and uh, fascinating chapters on when you joined Williams and you found yourself working with Kiki Rosberg. Tell us about. Uh, Kiki Rosberg as a as a friend, a colleague, a driver. Is great, Keki. Keki was the uh, world past world champion. Is a man's man. 
Um, very strong individual. Um, I mean, the cars we had to wrestle. Um, there was no power steering in our day, and um, you had to hang on uh, with, with brute force. And he used to carry the car and do some amazing things. So to having him as a teammate was, uh, was a great yardstick for me. If I could get close to his time and race with him, uh, obviously as a past world champion, I wasn't looking too bad. So, And he was very encouraging, Kaki, as well, because if you went anywhere near as quick as him or a little bit quicker, he would want to know exactly why and how. And, you know, and if you did go a little bit quicker, he'd congratulate you. Uh, he embraced um, you know the way things were, were going and working and we worked tremendously well as a team and it was very very exciting you were telling us before in your your early days in driving uh, some of the big crashes you had and discharging yourself from hospital when uh, maybe you needed a bit more treatment but French Grand Prix of Paul Ricard uh, you break the record for the highest speed crash in F1 history yeah, it's another record I don't want. <laughs> yeah, it's a record that I hope Lewis never takes from me. I mean, I have to say, or anybody else that takes from me, because I was very lucky to survive that. And um, there's a couple of funny stories with that, actually. One was I was helicoptered off uh, to hospital, obviously unconscious, and they had the gurneys outside the helicopter. So, And I woke up halfway to the, helico- you know, to the hospital, and I was flying through the clouds and the, the sky, and I thought... Oh, sugar me. I, I think I'm actually dead this time. And you the thought wind, you were on the way the wind, to heaven. And I thought, well, I was hoping I was going on to heaven. But when I was just lying there going, oh, I don't like this. Oh, my goodness. And I suffer from vertigo and heights anyway. And I was going, well, I'm flying, so it's pretty neat. So, yep, yeah, I've done it this time. Well, this is not too bad. And then I passed out again. But, oh, it was uh, it was pretty scary stuff, actually. This was over 200 miles an hour, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, down the mile-long straight at Port Ricard, so you just flat out for so long, and one of the rear tyres let go and just turned me sideways uh, straight into the barriers, and the front left wheel folded back and um, and hit me in the head, and uh, and that's why you know I, I do suffer with um, sometimes um, concussion problems. You didn't discharge yourself the next day on this occasion, did you? Did you actually take the treatment? I, I had to be there for a few days because I don't remember too much for a few days. But uh, but then I did uh, I did come home as soon as possible because I wanted to do the British Grand Prix, which was the next race. And uh, I remember completely cheating the tests with Professor Sid Watkins in London because I failed all the tests. And I said, Sid, you didn't take them properly. But I learned what he wanted to do with the first tests. So then I gave him all the correct answers with the second test, but they were totally wrong answers that I would have given. But then I fudged the test so I could drive. So it was it was fantastic. And then so Ke- sorry, you sussed out what you thought were the correct answers <laughs> from messing up the first time. Yeah. Just to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sid was wonderful. He was absolutely fantastic. And, what sort uh, of tests were they? What do you have to do? Oh well, the one which was quite difficult was um, was uh, trying to do uh, things where they stick electrodes or through your head and various things. It's quite, quite complex, but, uh, but anyway, it was good fun and we had a good laugh. Uh, Nigel, let's fast forward. Um, the date, the 6th of October 1985, you qualified third on the grid behind Ayrton Senna and Nelson Piquet. Uh, you won the race, finishing 21 seconds ahead of Ayrton Senna and Kiki Rosberg. And obviously that was a really big moment in your career. You spoke before about the first time you got in an F1 car. First time you take... A checkered flag. Do you remember that equally as vividly? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, just uh, the exhaustion on the slow down lap because, you know, the, the, the feelings that go through your mind that this is, 
You'll never forget this day. This is the first time you've ever won a Formula One race. This is history making. It goes in the history books. Nobody can take it away from you. The British crowd were absolutely sensational. You know, winning at Brands Hatch that year because it's like an amphitheatre anyway. You know, the uh, the people on the grid, the world champions you're racing against, and all of a sudden you broke through. And, um, you know, it's just the most electrifying feeling you could wish to have. And I had my young family there, and uh, my father was still alive, and uh, it was just a terrific moment, um, you know, uh, which was um, makes me speechless even today. Are you on autopilot to a degree? And by that I mean as you're negotiating the final moments of that race, are you thinking... Oh, don't mess it up now. Please, the car stay fine. Oh, go yeah. on a wheel to go. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's you, the you, final stage. It's agony because you, you know, think, don't let this be snatched yeah, away from me. The, the last 20 laps was, 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 was like a horror movie in the car because you're worried about the gearbox, you're worried about the engine, the turbos, the tire pressures. Don't get a puncher. You know, don't nick a curb. You know, don't run out of fuel. Don't make a mistake. And the reliability then was still very, very difficult. And I was very grateful to be with the Williams team. But the number one car in those days in any team had a more a chance of finishing a race by 20 or 30% than the number two car sometimes. And so, yeah, I mean, the race is never over until you pass that uh, checkered flag. And, um, yeah, it was agony. In that last lap, I, I drove so smoothly, so carefully, so 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 slowly in some ways, just to make sure. And then coming out the last two bends, coming out of the Surtees and going to clearways, I thought, you know what, I can roll back there now as long as the diff doesn't seize up. And I remember thinking that. Don't think you can roll all the way there because maybe the diff will seize up and lock the rear wheels up and you won't get there. And then I thought, well, if that happens, I'll run there. <laughs> and let's accelerate because the 1986 season... You came desperately close to winning the F1 title and it was the Australian Grand Prix and it was so close. You looked certain to win the title and then a tyre blows and that cost you the championship. Yeah, I mean, what can you say? Except, you know, fortunately, um, television was superb. They, everybody throughout the world saw what happened. And although I didn't win the world championship, I, I became the people's world champion, which is something even more precious than probably winning the world championship. So it's truly tremendous. It was um, it was upsetting, but you know you got to bounce back, and that's the theory of the um, uh, the book. You know you dust yourself down, you bounce back, but it was there for the taking, and and all intensive purposes, I should have been world champion that year. What went through your mind when that tire blew? Well, the first thing was, you know, uh, don't go into the concrete wall immediately to the left or the right because your legs will get completely smashed. I didn't feel like having one of my legs amputated, um, you know, because when you hit the wall, because it's just concrete down both sides. And so it was just basically self-preservation. And uh, and then in hindsight, being 2020, um, I realised that when I slowed the car down a little bit, then perhaps I should have just had an accident and hit the wall because then they would have stopped the race the lap before and I'd been world champion. So when did that <laughs> go through your mind? Uh, not until the prize giving in December uh, when the clerk of the course said... Uh, how lucky we were not to hit anything, Casey. But you do realise if you'd had an accident, uh, you'd have been world champion. So I recovered from losing the world championship not once that year, but twice. So when you turn that over in your mind in the months and years to come, 
So what did you think? Did you end up thinking, well, I you mentioned before you became the people's mm-hmm. champion, but did, did you start thinking afterwards, well, maybe I've got to be, maybe I should have been ruthless and thought about myself and won the title then? Well, I think what you do is think is, you know, it's with a smile on your face, you take a rule book in the car and when you have an accident 200 plus miles now, you get the rule book out and have a read of the rules and make sure. <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, it's just fate. And, uh, and the great thing is we... We ended up and we did win it, and it was wonderful, and uh, the fans have just been terrific. Um, as the year started to move on, you're sort of getting closer, you're getting closer. What were your thoughts about how your career was developing? Yeah, I mean, I was reasonably pleased, but you never can also determine when you're born, and uh, this is with all sportsmen throughout the world. And um, I was born at a time where there was a lot of world champions racing all together for a long time. And, um, you know, when you're competing year after year against Nelson Piquet, Alan Prostet and Senna, Michael Schumacher and Nicky Lauda in the beginning and Keke and a number of others as well. I mean, you know, it's a tall order to win. It's a tall order to win and it's even a bigger order than to try and win a world championship. And that's why those great drivers, uh, a lot of them are multiple world champions. Because not only they're great drivers, they've always been number one drivers for all the teams. But when there's so many world champions around, when you're in a good team and there's a world champion there, he's always going to be number one and you're going to be number two. So it makes life more difficult to try and achieve. You're losing friends too along the way. Elio De Angelis was killed in an accident yeah. testing. Well, you move, you lose friends as well. When you drive with a world champion, I mean, I've been privileged and, and sort of blessed and, and hindered an awful lot because... When you drive with a world champion in the team, like I did with Alan, with Nelson, and uh, not so much with Keke, but but they are absolute outright number one. But if you actually start out qualifying them on a regular basis and out racing them, then they became your ardent enemy. And, um, you know, because obviously they're your yardstick and they're being paid, obviously, an an enormous amount of money more than you are. And uh, they'll do anything they can then to undermine you. And it creates problems until you become number one in a team yourself. And then obviously, uh, if you have the leadership and you've got the turn of speed, then being a number one is the most fantastic thing because you get all the backing. You're very competitive. You were all very competitive. You had a few scrapes uh, with them along the way, I guess. Do you have a couple of uh, scrapes with Ayrton Senna? No, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of dynamic ones, which was great. We Didn't you charge we had, you into a garage once and put yeah, against no, the wall? We, we had to have a meeting of the minds at one time in Spa, and uh, yeah, I, I encouraged him to uh, take his feet off the ground up against the wall, and I, uh, I sort of uh, spoke to him and... Uh, motivated him not to try and have me off the track again. What caused this? Tell us about the incident. <laughs> well, he basically drove into me and uh, we both had an accident of upwards of 200 miles an hour, which could have been ending in a terrible uh, situation where one of us or both of us could have lost our lives. And I saw the red mist because he upset me really, really badly. It was, it was a really diabolical manoeuvre he did. And there was only one person going to get the message across to him because the officials wouldn't. And, and so I just had a motivational chat with him and we had a good punch up then after that. And, and then after that, he realized that I wasn't going to give quarter and nor was he. So we better respect one another. Yeah. What was your personal relationship like with Ayrton Senna well, well, across be, the board? Be, before that, it was, you know, I had a distant respect for him, but didn't respect how he drove. Um, but after we had our uh, fisticuffs and um, we, we had a nice cup of tea afterwards. <laughs> No, we didn't, but we, we eventually saw eye to eye. And, um, 
And then we had some fantastic races and we had a healthy respect and then we had a very good relationship. Nigel, 1989, you drive for Ferrari and I would imagine being invited to drive for Ferrari is quite a big moment in anyone's career. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge compliment to get a call, to go and have a chat with them and to discover, you know, what their uh, thoughts are and to be actually offered a drive and uh, not only a drive, but a number one drive at Ferrari was a huge compliment. And uh, obviously that was back off the season of uh, 86 and 87 and, and even 88. So, so yeah, I, I, I grabbed it with both hands and uh, really enjoyed the experience. And Enzo Ferrari himself was instrumental in this happening. I was the last signing uh, for Enzo himself and to speak and be in the company of the great man several times and have meals with him. Um, just an uh, amazing experience and um, you know something that I'll treasure and uh, to be a Ferrari driver is something that stays with you your whole lifetime. Is that extra special? It is, it is, it is um, an amazing family to be part of. Uh, it's an amazing uh, mark to, to win race. Uh, to, to win a race for Ferrari is, is again legendary because you go into the history books um, and you know in some ways just disappointing that you know, it's such a political time when I joined them. And, of course, sadly, when Enzo, um, you know, departed, there was a titanic um, struggle, a political struggle within the company with the power brokers at how things would go forward. So timing is everything, and it was a difficult time at that, that time. Do you feel you fell victim of that? Well, it wasn't victim. It was just being part of it. Uh, there, was, there was lots of people who who fell um, victim of it from the point of view that they used to employ three different people to do some of the important tasks um, where they only needed one and their philosophy was the strongest one would win. But sometimes not the best person would win. You win your first race for Ferrari. and Fairy tale. All the Ferrari fans, they must have gone absolutely crazy. Yeah, no, it's, if there's one race you want to win, it's the first race for any new manufacturer and to go out and be blessed and win that first race, which was like a miracle anyway, because the car was so unreliable. But somehow it happened, and we dedicated the win to his great memory, and uh, it was just a marvellous event. But then I think it was eight races later before I finished another race because it kept breaking down. Um, when you went back to base camp after winning that first race for Ferrari, the reception must have been incredible. Yeah, no, and, and even now people remember it so well because it's, again, another bit of history. No, not many people win first time out for him. And um, I mean, uh, Michael Schumacher didn't win first time out for him. Uh, Seb, who's joined him now, didn't win first time out. He won second time out for them. So, yeah, just being one or two drivers who won first attempt for him was a lovely bit of history. And are there little moments uh, in your career that you look back on with such great fondness? Uh, and I'm thinking in particular of overtaking manoeuvres because all of a sudden that becomes a moment in time when it's a split second decision and you actually get past someone and there was a, a fantastic overtaking manoeuvre when you got past Senna I think that was was that Hungary? Yeah I, I mean I have to say that the, some of the fondest moments I've had is with Sir, Sir Frank and Sir Patrick at Williams now because you know they, they, they offered the uh, opportunity for me to drive for them uh, they gave me the most superb car some years to drive and to actually display my driving talent and and between us and there were some races you know and when you didn't when you think we didn't have the radio as as good as they do now and we didn't have all the settings on the steering wheels that they do now 
through through Patrick's uh, professionalism and tenacity of Frank, um, we managed to put some races together with their help that we actually had not only fantastic overtaking maneuvers, but we won some incredible races that really, without the planning, careful planning and the, the pit stops and how many times to stop for tyres, we would not have achieved. And so as a team, the satisfaction of doing that with uh, Sir Frank and Sir Patrick was, uh, was, was fantastic. What's the difference in driving an F1 car today in comparison to in the days you're discussing there? Because mission control now possibly gives you a lot more information and a lot of information going, in, going into your I, I think the easiest way to explain it is there's so few people that um, was in the inner circle where, which would make the major league decisions. And you have a lot of people now in that in that circle of, of events that uh, make things happen. And, you know, the easiest thing to explain it is that we had three settings on the steering wheel. They've got something like 350 settings on the steering wheel. We used to have two or three engineers. They have 20 to 30 to 50 engineers now. And the drivers more often than not are told how to drive the car, whereas we used to drive the car ourselves and drive around the problems. So the feel of driving the motor car was you were relying on your feel for how the car was performing and just getting a gauge of how you felt yeah, it was doing. And, but and, and but think, now the information is telling you. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that, that, that I see different, just watching it as a fan, I'll just answer this as a fan. In our day, we had big fat tires. We, we didn't have any traction control. The car was always going sideways or twitching or doing things. There was body language of the car. And depending who driving the car, you could see the body language of the car and you could tell, oh, so-and-so is driving that car. Whereas now the tyres are a lot smaller. You know, the car stays right as a neutral car all the way through the corners. It, it twitches very rarely. And if it does twitch, then more often than not, it's going to run off the circuit. So it, it's very, very significantly um, subtly different now. With that competitive spirit you have, when they have a situation of the inverted commas number one and number two driver, how does that impact on you? And uh, you were number two to Prost in Ferrari. You wouldn't have enjoyed that. No, well, I mean, obviously I was I was number two to Keke, number two to uh, Nelson, number two to, to Alan. Um, but, you know, I have to say the teams, whoever I was driving for, they, every single team strive to give you the same car as the number one driver. It's just that in eventuality, back then, it was very difficult to achieve sometimes. Now, present day, more often than not, as, as proved with the Mercedes drivers, as proved with the Ferrari drivers, you know, um, everyone's got pretty much identical uh, equipment. But if you're outright number one and, and number two, there is a significant difference, even in this day and age now. Is it accurate that you were planning, thinking about retiring again at the end of 1990 and then Frank Williams came back on the scene and said, no, don't do that? No, I, I did retire. I actually retired for all the right reasons because, you know, um, what people forget was I signed two-year contract with Ferrari to be number one and then they, they honourably brought that out for the second year so Prost could come. That was the only way he would come by being the outright number one. And um, but that was honourable what they did, and I just thought, well, you know, if I can't get the the goods to do the job, you know, I've lasted this long. Um, how long is a piece of string? I don't want to be there in Formula One just to make the numbers up. I want to win. I want to win consistently enough to then try and win a world championship. That's my goal. And there was no opportunity for me, so I retired. And then Frank came on because he was turned down by Prost and Ayrton. 
uh, because his car and his team, you know, wasn't up to the speed that they wanted it. So then Frank was left without a lead driver, and that's when we got back together again. Um, would you have wanted? I would imagine you would have said, "Well, come, how serious are we, gentlemen? Uh, sort of what sort of what sort of car, what sort of back are we going to get?" Were you saying we need to make sure everything's in place? Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's why you know the minimum I'd, I'd go was a two-year, but I wanted a three-year, but they wouldn't give me a three-year deal. But and I found out why uh, was was obviously as soon as I won the world championship, then. You know, my services weren't really required again. <laughs> but you know what? After all these years, I, I don't really care anymore because, you know, we won the World Championship. It would have been wonderful to defend it in the team and the manner of which I won it. But um, we had the most marvellous time. We're still alive. We're still doing great things. You know, I do incredible charity work, which I'm incredibly proud of. And, um, you know, I'm just thankful for the great memories and great fun we had at the Williams team, Ferrari team, McLaren team even, and obviously the, the, the fantastic Lotus team. Everything came together in 1992, dominated the season. You sealed the title as early as August. What factors do you really attribute to your success, a wonderful success? Um, probably 30, 40 years, incredible planning, uh, learning uh, with great pain and expense. Uh, pain through being injured, pain by missing out, being bridesmaid three times, going through incredible learning processes and coming up the hard way and, and knowing how great world champions win world championships. And that's putting themselves in a place where then they can actually uh, deliver the goods to get the job done. The season was progressing. You were having great success. And there was a period of three successive wins in the French Grand Prix at Manicourt, the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, and the German Grand Prix at Hockenheim. Uh, the, in the, the middle of the trio came at Silverstone. The British Grand Prix, and uh, you're a proud Brit, and you've given great service to your country with policing duties, which we'll be discussing uh, a little bit later. But winning the British Grand Prix, after you said before, sort of all that sort of 30, 40 years of uh, build-up to winning the world title, but the British Grand Prix as well must be a very emotional an emotional experience. It, it's utopia. I mean, love is the right word when Murray says uh, we love them, they love us, and we, we had an incredible um, uh, relationship and and the compassion that you know everybody shows towards the British drivers. And you know, when I was having my success, not least of all to me and and, and me to them, it, it was a wonderful experience to have a home Grand Prix. It was wonderful to compete. And, you know, those periods of times, and obviously I've come second a number of times at Silverstone as well. But, you know, just delivering, trying to deliver the goods all the time for the British fans at your home Grand Prix was uh, was a great experience. Um, the flags fly, everyone screams. Can you just give us an overview of being on a podium? Because we, we see the champagne being sprayed and we see the way podiums are today. Of course, they've changed down the years. But are you sort of still on sort of cloud nine for having finished a race? or do, do you remember stuff like that? Yeah, no. I mean, it's, it's just you're on cloud nine. You're just so happy. You're so proud. And the national anthem and, and you know, the, literally you, you get something stuck in your throat. And, you know, if you're a proud person and, and you're, you're in a true royalist, which I am all the way through, I'm so proud of our royal family and the heritage, and I love history. And to be part of history, winning a home Grand Prix in front of your your British fans and the fans being so electrifyingly, you know, responsive and and, and excited and motivated, um, it's the best feeling in the world. It's just absolutely unbelievable. 
How good are you at the champagne spring? Is there a, is, uh, is there an art to that? Yeah, I got I got pretty good. I I got Nelson in the eye and Alan a few times. <laughs> is there a technique and a little knack yeah. knack to Yeah, you it? get a lot of pressure before you release yeah, yeah. the thumb. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Nigel, you clinched the world championship at the Hungarian Grand Prix. You finished second to Ayrton Senna. Can you remember the moment? What went through your mind? It, it's such a mountain to climb that you never think you're going to get to the top, and um, it's almost like the bubble bursts when you cross the line and realise you are actually world champion. And I think the, the euphoria was summed up was by Ayrton Senna on the podium with me. I couldn't have wished to come second to a better person that day because he's put his arm around me and he said, now you might understand a little bit why I'm so B, 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 B about what I do. And he said, it's the most wonderful feeling in the world, isn't it? And um, a few other things I can't obviously share. Um, and you just realize that you have just climbed the highest mountain that there is for sportsmen in that particular sport. And you just realize then how ruthless, when you've won it a few times before, like other people have, that they're not, not prepared to do anything they can to win it again. And um, it was extraordinary, extraordinary feeling. It was a beautiful feeling. And I uh, had that beautiful feeling for 24 hours. <laughs> I think whenever the discussion comes round to F1 and there is so many wonderful drivers from down the years and you won the world title and you sort of represent Great Britain uh, with such dignity and respect. But thinking of F1 overall, I think people always return to uh, Ayrton Senna's death, don't they? That was such a moment that I, I think it's one of those moments where a lot of people have any love for sport. You remember where you were. Yeah, I know. I mean, and the tragic thing is, is that not just Ayrton and Roland Ratzenberger the day before. And if you look at, you know, the way the car went in and hit the wall, um, I don't know how many million percent unlucky you have to be to have, have, have lost your life in that accident because probably a zillion times out of a zillion times, you, you wouldn't perhaps walk away. You'd be concussed or you'd be hurt but you wouldn't lose your life. And that fateful day, Ayrton's fate was that um, he wouldn't walk away from that terrible accident. And uh, it shocked the world, and it's still, as a friend, past friend, and as, as someone who raced with him, um, it's still amazing because the world thought, as I did, uh, that Ayrton was bulletproof. He thought he was bulletproof. And, of course, it changed the face of Formula One. As I said, with Roland's accident the day before and Ayrton's, at that day at Imola in 94, it changed Formula One forevermore. And does it just go through your mind in those moments that you've lost a friend and you replay the great drives, his ability as a driver? You re replay too, I guess, as well, that we've had our scrapes down the years and that competitive edge that shows itself. I would imagine it's a, a myriad of emotions that uh, hit you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I've learned with doing this book, which is the most amazing thing, that... I've never been able to grieve. I, I never understood about grieving, even when my mother died, because when my mother died, I was straight in the car the next day and doing my job. And uh, I've learned a lot of uh, things about myself um, you know, this, this past year. And um, I think the biggest thing when Ayrton died was the disbelief, the shock. And everyone has shock in a different way. And it can affect people um, you know, terribly sometimes. And then I had the realization that not only you know had he passed, that, but then I was driving his car for the last four races, 
and it was the monumental experience of of literally getting in uh, a pair of dead man's shoes, if you like, to, to drive his car. Was it difficult to climb into the car? And it was horrendously difficult and very emotional. And, you know, I found it um, a bit disturbing. But, you know, then you had to look around at you know, how many people were in the team, the sponsors, and, you know, you get on and do the job. And you have to put it out of your mind. But it, it's something that you deal with. And, and, and I, I realised in 94 and 95... Um, it was affecting my life in a in a quite significant way, because Ayrton was part of all our lives. And you know, when you're racing tooth and nail with someone like I was with Ayrton for so many years, uh, you know, some of the races I was winning all the time, he was second, and some of the races I was second, he was always winning. So you know, we we're on the on the racetrack having a good go all the time. So we were very, you know, it was quite an incredible experience. So it changed you. It yeah, I think I think any fatality of anybody, if you're close to them, it, it changes you, it touches you, and I think the mistake then is is that you know just because everyone perceives you incredibly tough and you don't show any emotion, you know, don't think for one minute they don't feel it. And um, you know I know that um, now in hindsight, you know I I needed to sort of have a chat to a couple of people, which I should have done perhaps at the end of '94 or '95. Uh, which perhaps would have um, made my career longer than it actually was. Can you explain more on that, Nigel, when you say you needed to speak to a few people to sort stuff Well, out? you know, you need to share some challenges sometimes uh, because you can't shoulder them all yourself. And I went through uh, a number of years where, um, you know, we had everything sort of sorted. And even when we went to America, there were some fatalities in America that we had to deal with on the ovals. And, um, you know, it, it, it catches up with you. Sometimes life catches up with you and... And uh, Ayrton and the situation with being the world champion and going to America and thinking your future's there and then being brought back to Formula One again. You know, I was being pushed and pulled in many places and um, I perhaps needed to take stock of, um, you know, what we were going through and, uh, and maybe the outcome would have been a bit different. What enticed you to make this step to leave Williams and to go and do something completely different in the United States? Well, it was just circumstances when one door closed, another door opened, and Paul Newman and uh, Carl Haas presented uh, an opportunity to go to America and uh, do some exciting racing, which was um, quite quite significant at that time, which was uh, IndyCar. And uh, obviously we made the switch and we had a lot of fun. This is oval tracks, very high speeds, and you go up on the bank how would you describe it? Yeah, oval tracks and, and normal race tracks and uh, the op oval tracks, super speedways, are averaging, averaging 230 miles an hour average. And uh, on the um, mile triovals, you're averaging upwards of 200 miles an hour. And um, obviously, doing a lap in uh, at that time around about 20 seconds, which you go dizzy and it's like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. It's frightening. And you got concrete walls everywhere, no runoff, no nothing. It was absolutely alien. And you're running into a corner every few seconds, and it's a 90-degree corner uh, with concrete on it. And you're trying to go through the corner at 200 miles an hour, and you're going, must be mad, must be absolutely mad. Yeah, I, I'd go along with that. It, you, you, are, you are crazy to do that. Before you arrived, I remember being sent to the United States to make uh, a little film about Newman House. I have to say, 
Paul Newman is a very cool dude, but uh, <laughs> it's hard to get a few words out of him. Would you agree, or were you sort of no, big, it, big, big if, buddies? No, if, if you know him real well, and he's come and stayed in your home many times. Really? And, oh, yeah. We, he used to come and support our charity event for several days uh, down in Florida, and uh, we got on tremendously, and it was Paul who actually persuaded me quite significantly. So he used to call me quite regularly, um, and uh, we, we got on very, very well. He loves motorsport, doesn't oh, he? Wonderful. Yeah. How would you describe that time in IndyCar? Because you win the first race and you become the champion. Yeah, well, it's another magical time. I mean, I had uh, some incredible moments and uh, I was right at the top of my game, albeit a bit late in age. Um, but I, I was just having an incredible time and on crest of a wave. And, and what I did, what people didn't realize, and, and Bernie Eccleston was marvelous. He said, well, look, you're going over there now. At least go and show them how to do it and win. And, um, you know, I thought about a number of things myself and how things sort of finished in F1. And I took 93 as a challenge that I'm defending world champion. So I'm going to defend my world championship in 93. And that's why I won the IndyCar world championship in 93. It's like the defense. And so it's wonderful. Great experience. Um, I mean, amazing uh, challenges that we had in that year. But, but we got through it. Uh, to be the reigning F1 champion and still to win the IndyCar title at the same time and to hold both titles at the same time. Well, the, hardi the, hardi that. the hardest title to win, I have to say, was the IndyCar one because um, we had that hiccup at the second race and I exploded into the concrete wall at um, almost 200 miles an hour and I had a terrible uh, back injury and had to be um, operated on. It's now in the uh, annals of the medical journals in in America called the Mansell lesion, so it can be looked up, uh, because they'd never seen a living person with an injury like it. Uh, normally, um, they only find that injury uh, when they're, they're doing autopsies, unfortunately, with passengers of planes that are crashed with the shearing force of hitting the ground. And of course, here I had this injury in my back, and um, that's why I had to have 148 stitches and certain special surgeries done to my back to carry on in the same year I won the championship. Yeah, true to form, did you storm out of the hospital as no, usual? No, no, I was, I was, <laughs> I was, I was in in pretty bad shape, but um, but we still managed to sort of get through it. Uh, will your body be left to medical science eventually with all the injuries you've had? No, they've refused it already. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they, I'd got be quite too a, embarrassed to let them see it. <laughs> they've got quite a catalogue of x-rays uh, then from down the years. So. Yeah, I'm going to go up in flames. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how does that impact on you now? Sort of, Obviously, you don't have to get in and out of an F1 car, but do, do you have any sort of issues going on with the old... Yeah, in the wintertime, in the cold, I, I, get, I seize up really bad. I get real grumpy and the pain is terrible. That's why I spend the winters in Florida. It's, it's wonderful out there. But, but yeah, when it, when it starts going cold here, um, I mean, I'm working all the way through to early December this year. But uh, otherwise, I'd normally be in Florida by November. Let's remember the happy days when you won the IndyCar title in the United States. The final lap now being run at Nazareth. And there is the checkered flag for Nigel Mansell. The Kmart Havlin Lola takes the win and in doing so, takes the IndyCar championship. A piece of history in the making here. How did you find the racing circuit scene in the United States? Uh, truly fantastic and amazing. I think the brilliant thing when I won the championship, a lot of people who were very skeptical about Formula One drivers came up and said, uh, 
you've shown us what a Formula One driver can do this year. We never believed anyone could just come over here and do what you've done. And so a number of people took their hats off to us and uh, it opened up a, a whole new um, future. And um, it was very, very rewarding and the fans were brilliant. But after the first year, because they were curious, then they didn't want me to win anymore after that. <laughs> Do you think the American drivers and just the IndyCar scene overall had a little view of that they were superior to F1? Well, I don't know whether they did or didn't. I think they had limitations, which which we explored the first year I was there. And we rewrote the overtaking book on on ovals, for instance, because on NBC, uh, the one year at Indianapolis, uh, they had a very um, incredible commentator saying, oh, and this rookie's going on the outside, and, you know, basically what an idiot I was. And hadn't anyone ever told him that he can't overtake on the outside? And just as he was saying that, I did it. And the other commentator said, well, obviously no, because he's just done it. (laughs) So we rewrote some of the rules. And one of my finest wins at New Hampshire on my 40th birthday, uh, I overtook Paul Tracy on on a small oval circuit around the outside of turn two. And that just electrified the 90-odd thousand crowd that were there on that oval that day. So you win the IndyCar Series in the United States, then you return to Formula One, you go and drive for Williams, you drive for McLaren again. McLaren again. How do you sort of sum up and what are your, your memories of those final few laps? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's amazing, really. I mean, even all these years after I look at it, and, and, and basically I'd, I'd say I was in a, um, I was in a fog. Um, basically, I, I was happy. I'd signed contracts for three years in America. Then, obviously, the carpet pulled under your feet. Things changed. Uh, sadly, we lost Ayrton. We lost Roland Ratzenberger. You know, we were driving for Williams. Had a contract there. And then another rug got pulled. I wasn't driving there. Then I was driving for McLaren, and it was like it was like um, you know that game where musical chairs. You wonder where the hell we're going to end up. And um, it was it was just an interesting um, time, but. You know, I realise now that, uh, as I said, uh, I'd like to replay those last six months and uh, and look at it again very carefully with some good people around me to help get through the fog and uh, we would have actually had a different outcome. Do you think maybe sort of having a bit of an open forum and sort of thinking things through and maybe in the book as well, has as, as that, as yeah, that helped you sort of clear it, things? It, it, it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful because... You know, people don't realize the pressures that are on you. You know, when you move transatlantic again with a young family, you've got three young children, you know, you're actually coming across basically because, um, unfortunately, the demise of other people who have unfortunately lost their lives. You know, you're trying to sort things out. You're trying to get competitive. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, part of your body still transatlantic. It's catching up with you. And you need time to just sort of think clearly sometimes. And and I think, um, you know, some decisions were made, um, you know, a bit too quickly. There was a lot of misunderstanding on my side with people. And I think people misunderstood, you know, perhaps what I was trying to achieve as well. And, um, you know, in hindsight, that's why you have fantastic managers these days. You have fantastic commercial managers, personal managers and people around you who, who can help enormously uh, with those situations. So is diplomacy very important in these situations? Yeah, well, well, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's having knowledge, isn't it? I think getting back to UK youth, I think the most wonderful thing with youngsters today, they, they, if they're ill-informed, they're not educated, how on earth can they make better informed life choices? 
And, and the way you do that is by having information. And if you don't get the right information, you can't make the best choices. What made you write your life story at this time? And before you answer, can I just say on the back, people often chat to me and ask me, what was my biggest success? That one is easy, still being alive and surviving the journey. So I count my blessings to have had the career I've had. Uh, I get the impression you've enjoyed it's, writing this book. Yeah, it, it, it sums it up. I think it's also what I wanted to show people as well, what it was really like back then to drive a Formula One car, to compete with the best in the world, and to give them some also some comparisons to present day. I think it's important that you know there's been a big transition over 20-odd year, years since I, I won the World Championship, and obviously 20 years exactly till the uh, almost the day that I, I retired from Formula One. And I think it's absolutely incredible, the comparisons and the analogies and, and the wisdom that you can actually sort of give in a book like this and actually demonstrate to people as well that, you know, there's some real life stories in there that we're just like anybody else, you know, going through the challenges of life and dusting ourselves off and bouncing back from whatever's thrown at us. And, and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it takes longer to recover, but you still don't give up. You still keep going. It's published by Simon and Schuster. Did you enjoy sort of recounting and playing over in your mind the rivalries you've had uh, with all the your fellow drivers on the grid? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 lots of experiences that you pinch yourself and say, "Did we really do that? You know, did you achieve examples, that? please?" Examples. I mean, winning four British Grand Prix and one European one European Grand Prix in your home country, so winning five times on British soil. And uh, I mean, you know, that is that is record breaking and something very special um, being to be able to say I'm part of an elite club. Uh, what is the elite club? It's being a world champion. That's a very small club to be part of. I mean, if you look how many world champions there are in the history of Formula One, it's very, very special. Winning the amount of times we won and competing and competing against the likes of other great world champions at the time and the era that we were racing, where literally you faced death at any time because that was happening around you. And I think to come through all those and to actually see the evolution now of the sport where the safety cells, the manufacturers, the FIA, uh, the circuit uh, designers, uh, it just made things so fantastically better and safer for the sport. It's marvellous to see the evolution of that. When you get in a car today and drive around, sorry to be so simplistic, but you're used to driving these machines at sort of such high speeds. Do you enjoy driving today? Yeah, yes, I do. But I do worry about, you know, when you're younger, you obviously have a few brain cells missing because I reflect back and look at some of the cars I drove very, very quickly. And they were very, very dangerous. <laughs> I have to say they were very, very dangerous, but I obviously didn't think about that as much as I do now. <laughs> have you ever been stopped by a policeman for speeding? Has a policeman ever come to the side of the, the window? I know this is stereotypical, and you round the window down and he's recognised it's Nigel Mansell. Yeah, I'm afraid it has happened, yes. <laughs> and do you have a discussion about who do, you, who do you think you are, Nigel Mansell, or who do you think you are, Lewis well, Hamilton? I, I'm incredibly respectful for all the police forces around the world, so 
whatever they say is absolutely uh, is fine with me. It's, uh, it's It's been a great experience with all the support they do and all the great work they do. Yeah, you have given up a large part of your life to uh, sort of policing duties as a special constable. Yeah, I mean, very active many years ago, less active now, but um, there for all the right reasons for, you know, making either commercials for seat belts or non-drink driving, non-drugs. And obviously going out on duty on patrol too for for many many years. So uh, both in the Isle of Man and uh, Devon and Cornwall. So uh, yes, I've seen a fair bit of action. Yeah, when when you stop people, they must make a, a second take. When you've got the uniform on and it's anything to do with a motoring offence, and they suddenly clock that it, it's you, it must completely phase them. Well, I think the funniest thing when I was on traffic. Um, obviously, my partner used to go and do all the speaking and, and then what I do is radio in the registration and go and have a look at the tax and inspect the tires and see if they're illegal and everything else and this one particular one guy we stopped to thought there was only one police officer in the car and of course then then I came because it was dark and I came around the front and then he saw there was two and and then he sort of did like I think it was one one two three retakes and he went he went I can't repeat his words but he went oh dear 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 he went Oh, I don't believe this. I'm busted. <laughs> he probably saw it as a as a medal getting a ticket from you. He's probably no. framed the ticket. But but I have to say uh, that the police officer I was with was such a consummate professional. I mean, this this guy uh, obviously he was only a few miles over the speed limit, but he was had to be cautioned <laughs> and that. But but you know what? He, he we, we let him off. I have to say we, we let him off, and he was so grateful and so charming and. Uh, he was very respectful, and uh, I think I think I'm going back obviously 20 odd years now. So, uh, but uh, I, I wish pe- people would respect the police more than they do. They they're a great body of people. You spent your life a few miles over the speed limit. You received the CBA from Prince Charles uh, in 2012 at Buckingham Palace. I would imagine that stands uh, very highly in the, your list of achievements. Well, both Princess Royal and 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 Prince Charles are just amazing, amazing. Uh, uh, individuals who do so much incredible sterling work for enormous amounts of charities but yeah i mean uh, a milestone again and uh, very proud to accept that in honor uh, with the work that we do for uk youth now golf you mentioned before that apart from f1 you love your golf down the years you playing a lot to nowadays yeah i mean it, it comes in fits and starts but i'm, I'm very pleased that I, I played myself into my game um, in the World Championships in Lake Tahoe about three or four weeks ago, we had the Senior World Golf Federation Amateur Championships out there. And uh, I was there amongst uh, lots of different countries, uh, 25 different countries competed. And um, I'm very pleased to say that um, I was seeded number two eventually with a two-day qualifier off scratch. And then I went on to win the World Match Play Championship, beating a a Japanese gentleman who had been 10 times national champion in Japan. So I was very pleased to defend it because I won it last year as well. And I'm the only person who won back to back. So uh, pretty special. Congratulations. And you played in the Australian Open uh, in 1988. You do a lot of charity work. And throughout this, the time we spoke with you uh, tonight, you've spoken a lot uh, about the charity work you do for UK youth. It's clearly something that's very close to your heart. Yeah, I mean, I took over the presidency of it from the Duke of Westminster some 16-odd years ago now, and we reach um, anywhere upwards of three-quarters of a million to a million children in any one year. 
the 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 volunteers number anything from 40 to 45,000 in any one year with all the associated charities we work with uh, and the work is is just endless and even when you have successes from one year it doesn't change it gets harder for the following year and the biggest thing is what people don't realize just in our normal school system in England, Scotland and Wales, there's 40 to 50,000 children that get expelled from school every year. And most of them never get back into education or employment again. And what UK youth affords is, is obviously further education in a different way, in different learning centres. We never turn anybody away. And, and the small amount of money that you can actually get to educate and, and give youngsters better life choices to make is so important and, and and not only that to demonstrate to them that you know they can have dreams and they can make those dreams come true and and get better self-esteem and and go the right way in life final lap in my sporting life magic wand you have a magic <laughs> wand what are you going to do to help f1 evolve adapt i remember you saying to me early 90s making a film about f1 that if you stand still for one day in F1, you're going backwards. Um, it changes every day. So with this uh, magic wand, what are you going to do to help F1? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, they can very quickly help themselves, the powers of B. They have obviously the Concord Agreement and various other agreements, and they just need to get down and just make it a little bit more, I would call it a level playing field, a little bit more, where people could compete. Um, there's obviously enormous amounts of money in Formula One now, and you know, without sticking my nose in places where it doesn't want to go, um, you know, to help some of the lesser teams to obviously be there and compete in Formula One, they need more cars, they need more manufacturers. Tweak the rules a little bit, that you know, make it you know a little bit easier for new teams and and new manufacturers who are coming to join Formula One. As an example, we know with Honda and McLaren. I think it's appalling that, you know, some of the things I read and some people, what they say, um, Honda will get it right. Honda's won world championships in the past. Uh, I almost won two world championships with Honda. And, and they've won constructors' championships. But, you know, the rules, and then they've just not got it right yet at the moment. But they will. And McLaren will bounce back. They're the most fantastic team. They've won so many things, it's incredible. But I think if the rules are, you know, not working, then, then they need to be tweaked a little bit. And, and you've got all the clever people there to do it, so they can fix it. So what would you change immediately? Well, you know, as I said, what they've got rules to... Rules-wise? They've got to go behind closed doors, and they've got to agree. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to actually implicate in any way something that might be fantastic, then then won't happen. Um, but, but I think, you know, they have tremendous depth... Of, of knowledge to say, look, you know, we can fix this, but you've got to have a will to want to fix it. Um, if I asked you to just pick out a couple of the outstanding moments of your F1 career, clearly, obviously, I, I can imagine you're going to say winning the first Grand Prix, you're going to make, winning the world title when you get in the trophy. I, I think What jumps to mind? I, I mean, boxing Ayrton in Hungary, overtaking him there, going around the outside, the Peralta, Mexican Grand Prix with Gerhard Berger. You know, hunting down Nelson Piquet in 87 and doing the overtaking manoeuvre to win the British Grand Prix. Obviously, going across the line and, and winning the World Championship. 
Uh, there's just so many things. There's so many great things. So I think you know, being privileged to have lived in the time that I have and competed at the time where you know we had 36 cars qualifying for 26 places, the worry of not getting in the race and I'll never forget the one year, and it happens to be McLaren who, you know, made a simple mistake because you can't control the weather. They had Nicky Lauda, a fantastic world champion, and John Watson, fantastic driver in their team. They had very competitive cars. They went out too late at Monaco, and they didn't qualify for the Monaco Grand Prix because there's so many cars qualifying, they left it too late. And um, I'd like to see Formula One with a lot more cars, more more young drivers coming in and having the opportunity. And you can only do that with more manufacturers, more cars and more teams. How are you going to spend the years to come? Are you going to get back in the car? Well, no, no. I'm, I'm, uh, I've passed an age now where I can get in the car. I'd like to. I mean, the, the, really? the, the mind might. Well, you never know. You never say never, do you? So it might be possible. Um, but no, working very hard with Leo and um, he's doing a, a great job with our dealership in... Um, in Jersey, we have a Mission Bushy dealership and we okay. have a museum there and we have a petrol station and we have um, a full service center with nine lifts. So, uh, yeah, we, we're in the car business very significantly, playing golf, enjoying friends, family, my three grandchildren now. You know, so to have three grandchildren, the oldest being Jay, and uh, then you have Alfie and then Ava. And so uh, we have two grandsons and a granddaughter, and they bring a lot of joy to Rosanna and myself. Is the thrill of driving a car at 200 miles an hour, does that still give you a little Absolutely. bit of a buzz? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'd like to drive the Ferrari and, and obviously the, the, the Mercedes. But the biggest thrill I have in life is helping children. And, and that's why UK youth is so dear to my heart. And tonight, for instance, we've, we've got Art for Youth uh, and uh, the side of Albert Hall there. And, and we've got uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Royal coming and attending. So I hope that's going to be a huge successful night to raise funds again, much needed funds for the charity. It's been fascinating hearing about your life, but also the crashes. And as we've been sitting here for, for the last two hours, you've been just pushing that hip around a little bit. Does <laughs> the thing start to seize up when you yeah. sit in the chair for yeah, two hours? Yeah, I, I, got, I got a cramp in my right hip now. <laughs> yeah, yeah my accelerator foot is not working now. <laughs> it's, it's hitting all those walls down the years and sort of spinning over you. And they were frigging hard as well. <laughs> You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Ray Stubbs. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.